This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Jeremy Treat. So he is a pastor, author, and professor. He's a pastor for preaching and vision at Reality LA in Los Angeles, California. He's also an adjunct professor of theology at Biola University. So he is the author of a few books. So one is Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything, The Crucified King, Atonement and Kingdom in Biblical and Systematic Theology. And then this book here, which is the thing that is a scaffolding for our conversation today, The Atonement and Introduction. So this book is part of Crossway's Short Studies in Systematic Theology series, which is designed to equip the church to faithfully understand, love, teach, and apply what God has revealed in Scripture about a really a variety of theological topics. And so today we really bounced around quite a bit, but this guy grew up in Alaska, grew up going to church, but didn't become a Christian until later in life. Uh, his parents moved to Seattle, and then he ended up uh, settling in California, where he is a pastor now in Hollywood. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk about how mere Christianity and how the works of C.S. Lewis really led him to have a thirst and appetite for studying theology. And then we take a deep dive into the atonement. What is the atonement? Why does it make people so funny? Like, why, why does it make them feel funny, rather? Like, why is substitutionary atonement this thing that just makes people not feel good? Like, what do the people get wrong about the atonement? But then we also got into some people that don't like the atonement because they want us to unhitch from the Old Testament. So we talk a little bit about that. We get into God's wrath and how most people misunderstand God's wrath, and they do it because they don't really want to reckon with what the Word actually says. We talk about how we don't live in a shame culture and how that helps us or actually prevents us from from being able to understand our own depravity and sin. We get into talking about like TED Talk churches that don't really preach the gospel every week and how that causes some issues. We talk about politics and, you know, how, you know, the atonement creates a political community and how Jesus, as he said it, is Jesus is political but not partisan. And so we really start digging into that. We also talk about suffering and how most Christians think we're not supposed to suffer because we're special somehow or something like that. So I really enjoyed my time with him, so I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further Further ado, let's get into it. Jeremy Tree, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. What's up, Kyle? It's good to be here. It is a good day to have this conversation because we're going to be talking about little things today, things that don't get real deep. Just kidding. We have a big subject we need to talk about today. And because we have that big subject that we need to talk about that's going to take us a long time to unpack, we're going to unpack basically your entire life in about 60 seconds because you grew up in Alaska, but now you're a pastor in Hollywood, which makes absolutely no sense. You have 60 <laughs> seconds to tell me how in the heck that happened. Ready, set, go. Oh man, 60 seconds. So I lived in Alaska till I was 12. Uh, my dad was a cabinet maker. He, his cabinet shop burned down. He ended up buying a computer store that burned down, picked up and left and just moved to Seattle uh, looking for a new place to live. We, we landed in Seattle. I did junior high and high school there. Uh, and then I, I did, I helped plant a church in Seattle, was there for seven years, ended up doing grad school in Chicago at Wheaton College and came to LA. I've been here for almost 11 years now and uh, love the city, love pastoring, uh, love what God's doing here. Well, I have one follow-up question. Um, yeah. It seems clear like God communicates to your father via fire because apparently every time he had a job, God's like, no, 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 not, not that one. We, we got to burn that off. Like, has he had any more fires in his life other than the two uh, you mentioned? Thankfully, just those two. But I tell you what, man, my, my dad's a fighter and 
he's been through a lot and he gave me, he, he gave me a healthy foundation in life when he didn't have one himself. And so I'm super grateful for my dad. He's, he's been uh, pivotal for me in so many ways. Well, let's talk about a little bit of foundational stuff with your family because you grew up going to church, but you weren't a Christian at an early age. And so, uh, and kind of in my friend group, I have a lot of people that were Christians. They like, they were at church while in the womb and then they became Christians, you know, really young, you know, five, six, seven years old. And so I don't hear from people that are in church their whole life. There are well-churched people that become followers of Christ later. So how did that kind of happen for you? Yeah, I mean, I like <clears throat> I grew up in church and I, I would say the church, my parents are great. Like they love the Lord, taught me the word. But the churches that I grew up in when I was pretty young were, I would say, really legalistic. And I, honestly, I learned how to play the game. Like I'm good at that. I'm good at kind of figuring out how to perform and doing that. And I, I would do that at school. I would do that in sports. And I did that in church. Like I learned like, oh, I talk this way around these friends and talk a different way around these other friends. And I I think for me, it was honestly, it was when I realized the sin in my heart and my need for God's grace. That was like the key turning point for me because I there was, there was a time where God exposed my pride. And I, I think I realized like I was a self-righteous Pharisee. And when I recognized that, and then I, I literally remember reading the scriptures and being like, oh, these are the people that Jesus confronts. Like Jesus goes hard at these guys. Like he's compassionate with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. But man, he gets these like self-righteous religious guys like me who think who thought that like God was lucky to have me on his team. And Jesus confronts mm-hmm. him. And when I when I saw that and kind of recognized my religious pride and self-righteousness, mm-hmm. I just saw my need for grace. And what was amazing was in that moment, it was like when I recognized how bad I actually was, it's like God's response wasn't to come and shame me or to reject me. But then I understood the gospel. It was like, oh, what I've been hearing is this kind of cheap, like Jesus died, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, God loves you. All of a sudden it sounded so powerful because it was I recognized my need for it. And then seeing God's love. And so, yeah, that, that really transformed me. So from that day forward, I feel like, I mean, not only did, I mean, God saved me, gave me a new heart, gave me a new purpose to live. And I feel like from that day forward, I've just been coming back to the gospel of like, how do I, how do I continue to live according to God's grace in Christ and how that impacts my heart and then every aspect of my life. Well, I think it's important too. Don't worry, we will get to later in this conversation uh, talking about cheap gospel and how certain churches present that type of gospel. And yeah. um, I mean, I just posted on something on my Instagram here recently with this guy basically lighting this old pastor that I'd never seen before, just lighting people on fire, basically saying we don't have preachers anymore. We have teachers. We have people that like to teach you about uh, about the gospel, but they're not preaching the gospel in a way that makes it sink past the intellectual. Uh, stuff kind of buzzing around in your head than to hit you at a heart or soul level. And one of the people, one of my favorite authors of all time, C.S. Lewis, um, he's helped me uh, intellectualize my faith in a lot of ways because he was such an intellectual giant. And we have a book list on our website. It's the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. And and they're broken down into categories. So there's uh, money and Christian and leadership and manhood and all that. C.S. Lewis is the only author that has his only category. So I think he has five or six books and it's his own 
category. Not everyone likes that, but I don't care. It's my list. But for you and I, we share a book that had a tremendous impact on us and that's mere Christianity. But specifically as far as long as I've got my details, correct. Mere Christianity wasn't just a cool book that you read. It wasn't just something that had a few interesting thoughts that were worth highlighting. It wasn't something that just gave you a generalized appetite for Christian apologetics, but this was a book that really sent you on a pathway to where your appetite for studying theology became a center point for your life. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. And what's funny, Kyle, is I didn't even read before like, I read Mere Christianity. Yeah. I grew up as a jock, like playing basketball. Yeah, typical guy. Yeah. Lifting weights. Like, and I hated reading and I, I can't remember why, but I think I think it was right after my senior year of high school. I was 18 years old, and I I read Mere Christianity, and it was like, it, I mean, it was such a life changing experience for me because all of a sudden I realized how much I didn't know. Like I read this, and it was just blowing my mind of like this, like what? And what I love about Mere Christianity is it doesn't. It's not just teaching you information. It, it makes you think differently kind of explodes your categories and gives, then gives you a right. really simple analogy and then applies it to life. And I, it made me realize how much I didn't know. And that just gave me this hunger to learn and grow. And I felt like from that point on, I was like, man, what, there's so much to learn and what we believe really matters and shapes the way that we live our lives. And so I feel like God lit a fire in me that day to learn theology, to grow and learning to love the Lord with my mind. Um, and it hasn't stopped since then. So I'm, I'm so grateful for C.S. Lewis, grateful for that book. I had, uh, I mean, just to kind of close the loop on this story, I had the sweetest moment when I finished my, my dissertation. I was doing my PhD at Wheaton College. And they have a place called the Wade Center where they have a lot of C.S. Lewis's memorabilia. So they have, they have his original the desk that he wrote a lot of his books on. They have the wardrobe from his house that he grew up in, all this kind of stuff. And I went in there and I wrote the last sentence of my dissertation sitting at C.S. Lewis's desk where he wrote a lot of his books. And it was that idea of like, man, it started there for me, that hunger to learn and grow. And then to be able to come back and kind of honor him and close it in that way was really sweet. So... That's an amazing story, but I do have to ask. They had the wardrobe there, but did they have the lion and the witch, or were those not were those not there? I didn't there? try to walk through it. I I, I okay. wasn't brave enough to open it up and go for it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, I'm gonna be real honest with you. If I was there with his wardrobe, I would have opened it up even if I wasn't allowed to. I was just gonna just to see, yeah. just to make sure. But I think you're absolutely right in terms of how C.S. Lewis challenges people to think differently because yeah, he, he wrote this stuff like a hundred years ago. The English was a little bit different. He was very English in how he wrote, but you can't read C.S. Lewis passively. Like there are certain books. I know guys are really getting into audiobooks, right? There's only a couple of categories of types of books that I can listen to passively. So literature, you know, fiction, those types of things. History, yeah. uh, those are things that I can listen to pass, uh, you know, passively because it, it kind of presents a narrative. But something like this, like a book that's not thick, but it's like thicker than a Snickers in terms of its density of, of argumentation. Like that's something that you have to read. And I'm so dumb. Like I will read a whole page and be like, if I had to give you a summary of that page to save my life, I'd be dead. I'd be dead in this exact instance. So I have to go back and start from the beginning here. But before we get into to your book, uh, and we're going to talk about a specific aspect of theology, Christians in general, Jeremy, get really freaked out by the word theology. Because mm -hmm. 
they think of Theo bros. They think of uh, heresy hunters. They think of these people that are just constantly using their correct theology to tell you why you're stupid and why you're doing it wrong. Or so that's kind of the aggressive side. But the other side is like, man, I'm just not smart enough for that. I'm not smart enough for theology. I can barely read the scripture and understand it. So theology is something that nerds go to college to learn. And like, I'm just not a nerd. I'm just a farmer. I'm just a guy that works in a factory or I'm just a you know teacher or something like that. I can't possibly dig into theology. That's for theologians. So what would you have to say to people that kind of have that mindset? Yeah. I mean, it bums me out. Theology has been given a bad name in a lot of ways. You got a lot of, there's a lot of people out there with huge heads and shriveled up hearts who are going around using theology of just kind of shutting people down and crushing them. And I think it, it, that breaks my heart because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, theology is meant to help us love God and love people. It, theology should fuel our worship. It, theology should make us humble. Like when we, when we rightly understand who God is and what he's done, like it should make us humble people who are loving. So, but a lot of it comes back to what theology is, Kyle, because a lot of people, they'll, they'll get off. It's like, oh, theology, that's just like scholarship that uh, boring, nerdy people do in libraries at universities, right? right. And there's a place for that. We need people um, who think at such a high level that they can hardly engage in a regular conversation. We need those people. Um but theology just means it. I mean, the word theos means God in Greek and logos means study. It's the study of God. But the way I define theology is it's what you believe about God and everything in light of God. So I believe I have these beliefs about God and I want to make sure that they're right beliefs because a lot of them are wrong naturally or in, at least in our fallen flesh. But then it's what we believe about everything in light of God. So our theology shapes the way that we think of the meals that we eat and the sports that we play and the work that we do. And so I try and give people a vision for theology that shapes all of life. Theology is it's simply learning to love God with our minds. And that's God wants us to bring all of who we are to him, our bodies, our hearts, our minds, our souls. Um, and so theology really does matter because what you believe shapes the way that you live. And so, I mean, I talk about this like everyone's a theologian. You have beliefs about God. You're, you're driven by certain beliefs and convictions that you have. And let's make sure that our theology, our beliefs are in line with Scripture and not just following a secular narrative or whatever that would be. And to that point, Jeremy, I, I think part of the dissonance is between intellect and faith. And there are people that think if I have to learn this, then it's, it's I'm not being faithful. And so that that leads to some very dangerous ideologies about the, the Bible in particular. And I, I don't want to get off on a, on a genre conversation, but there are people that read every single sentence of the Bible as if it's literal. Not, not as if it's inerrant or infallible, as if it's literal. And if you are a literalist, then Jesus is actually a vine. He is actually a door. Like, you know, there, there's all these things like that. I mean, even, even Jesus using parables, these weren't real stories of real people. They were stories, right? And so it causes some issues when you're like, yeah, you know what? I can't explain it, but the Bible doesn't say it, so it must not have happened. Well, the Bible can't tell me who the eighth president of the United States is, but that happened. It super duper happened. And so I think it causes some problems for people. But to well, dig into something, or go ahead, yeah. That's one of the reasons I think theology is so important today is because 
a lot of the times people just, they just want a verse that they can point to, right? Like, is it right or wrong? Is it, you know, they want a verse that they can point to. There's a lot of things that we're dealing with in our society today that I can't point to a verse. Like what does Nehemiah say about artificial intelligence? Nothing, right? Like what do we think about uh, gender and like people transitioning genders? And like, well, the Bible is going to give principles for that, but there's not a verse that you can point to for that. So there's a lot of things going on. What do we think about dating? Dating's not in the Bible. Like there's nothing, like there's no verse. So you end up leaning on your theology to answer those questions and that's so important to be faithful to Christ in this day and age. I think it's also important. So again, like on the transgenderism thing, God made us male and female, but of course it doesn't explicitly say, and you can't switch a Roo, like right. even though that's implied in the text, obviously. But the other thing I think it becomes a problem, and then we really need to get into business today, is that the scripture is not about us. I remember one of my favorite videos of all time that exists on YouTube is when inexplicably Stephen Furtick invited Matt Chandler to his church to deliver a sermon. And Stephen Furtick is sitting on stage like a weirdo. I don't know what he was doing there while Matt Chandler was talking. And Matt Chandler is screaming at the people of Elevation Church and saying, you are not David. Like in the story of David and Goliath, the Bible is not about you. <laughs> the Bible is about God. And so your, your problems at work or your relationship with your mother, that is not Goliath. And you are not David and you are not going to go and throw a stone at it and something like that. And so Nehemiah, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament, um, Nehemiah can't tell us about AI, but it sure can tell us about preparedness, about what it means to be a man in a community that is prepared not only to work, but also to fight. But again, we're extrapolating things out of it that are life lessons for us today that don't necessarily coincide with the meaning of why that text is there in scripture. So there, that's the end of my commercial. And that's, that's me dunking on whoever uh, I need to dunk on. But we need to talk about this book that you sent me. I appreciate it. It's called the atonement and introduction. Okay. And so it's a little bit longer than you would assume an introduction would be, but I think everyone gets the point. I want to read a quote from the beginning and then we'll dig into why you actually wrote it. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the most significant event in the history of the world. By dying in our place, the Son of God accomplished all that is necessary for the reconciliation of sinners and the renewal of creation. But how could the death of a fairly unknown Jewish carpenter alter the course of history? Why could crucifixion of this man, when Rome crucified tens of thousands, bring healing and hope to the lives of others? How could a gruesome execution by the state be considered good news? To ponder these questions is to stumble into the doctrine of atonement. So why write this book? Why not write a tome? Why just write an introduction? Uh, you know, why do you have this personal interest in the atonement? You know, what do people mostly get wrong about the atonement? Take it wherever you want to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote this book because I think, like, like in the quote that you just read, I think that the cross of Christ is the apex of human history. And yet, I don't, I see a lot of people yawning over it. I see people running after and getting really excited about other things and not really seeing the significance of this. And honestly, one of the things I see is a lot of people having their theology shaped by uh, reactionary debates on Twitter about social issues. And look, those social issues are important. We need to think about those things as Christians in accordance with God's word but that's how people are forming their theology is reading hot takes that go back and forth on this or that issue. That's not going to be the issue in five years. And yet 
we neglect major doctrines of the faith, like the doctrine of scripture and the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the atonement. So this is like cornerstone for all that we believe as Christians. And I especially see a, a generation that that's not getting a foundation theologically. So that's why I wrote this. And that's part of why I wanted to write this as an introduction. I wrote this book thinking, I want my mom to be able to read it and really, and really like learn from it and grow and be able to apply it to her life. Um, I, I didn't write this book to interact with scholars. Um, like I want this to be people in the church who say, I want to take, I want to go a little bit deeper. Like I want to be, I want to learn to use the muscle of my brain a little bit and, and apply that to how I relate to God and do it with a core subject like the cross. So that's why I wrote the book, hoping that people in the church could, could pick this up, read it and, and start plumbing the depths of the good news of Jesus. Well, and I think one thing that's helpful with this is it, it, it is, uh, it is attainable for the layman. Okay. It's very accessible in how it was written. It does get heady, but that's why you have footnotes because it's like, okay, if this particular line of questioning or argumentation is important to you or interesting to you, well, here, go read this 700 page book by some, you know, some professor somewhere. And that'll give you a much deeper dive into that. But I think one of the problems with the atonement uh, outside of the fact that people don't know what it is, but let's just say with the population of people that do know what the atonement is, they at least tangentially understand what the atonement means theologically. We are really uncomfortable with the idea of substitutionary atonement. And so there's a quote in your book, a short one, it says this, in short, the means of atonement is substitution. Christ died in our place for our sins. Substitution, therefore, is not another dimension of the atonement, but rather undergirds all of the dimensions of the atonement. Why do you think, Jeremy, that people have such a, a hard time with substitutionary atonement? Is, is it because of our internal understandings of justice? Like if I commit a crime, it's not my wife that pays for it. Like if, you know, if my child does something wrong at school, I don't get a spanking. Like, you know, what, what is that? Is that kind of where it comes from? No, I mean, those, I, those arguments get lodged out there. But honestly, I think the reason that people downplay or deny substitution is because they have a weak understanding of sin. If you have a, if you have a weak understanding of sin, then it's okay for Jesus to just be an example on the cross, that he's just giving us an example of self-giving love, of sacrifice, of you know identifying with the marginalized and you just need to follow that example but if you believe like it says in ephesians 2 that we are dead in our transgressions that we're under the judgment of god that we're blind to the truth then we don't just need a good example for us to follow we need a savior who comes and dies in our place for our sins to blot them out completely. So I, I think I think those uh, some of the reasons that you mentioned, people get into those is like, oh, how could he die in our place? And there's I think there's good discussions around that. But Fleming Rutledge says this. I mean, she's a theologian who's functioning in like a mainline church where a lot of people don't like substitutionary atonement. And she she basically says flat out like they don't like substitutionary atonement because they don't acknowledge sin. Um, and so I think if you really have a biblical understanding of sin, it's going to show you the need for Christ to be our substitute. 
Well, it also doesn't matter if you like it or not. Like, that's the funny thing about that. Like, when I hear people make arguments about certain places in scripture that just make them feel funny or make them feel icky or doesn't, it gives them the sads. Like, it's like, okay, well, uh, I acknowledge your feelings because that's what I'm supposed to do. But now I'm also going to disregard your opinion because it's dumb. And so, like, that that's the thing that I don't really understand with, with why people do that is why they think their feelings uh, come, in, come into play so much. But there was uh, one funny thing that you said in terms of, okay, how can we understand the doctrine of sin? How can we understand the, the, the story of Scripture, the totality of Scripture? How can we understand the atonement without both parts of the Bible, that being the Old Testament and the New Testament? So your quote was, the substitutionary work of Christ is incomprehensible apart from the Old Testament. But right. I've been reliably informed by super duper turds like Andy Stanley that it's completely okay to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament because the Old Testament's kind of weird and it you know gives us consternation about dinosaurs and we don't really know if a man can actually live in the belly of a well for three days. Like, okay, so let's just get rid of the Old Testament because I can't explain everything. Let's just focus on the New Testament and pretend like people knew the Messiah was coming because of just thoughts in the ether. And so why do you think it's so important for us as Christians to not just completely unhitch and disregard the old Testament? Well, I mean, first of all, it's the word of God. And if <laughs> so that, that's number one, uh, number two is that if you lose the old Testament, you lose the meaning of the new Testament. Uh, I mean, right, you don't know what you're looking for. What were the people looking forward to in terms uh, of a Messiah? Yeah, when, when John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, what does that even mean, right? If you don't have the Old Testament. When when Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, what does that even mean apart from the book of Isaiah and 2 Samuel? And like, So Jesus is a man with a story, and you can't understand who Jesus is apart from that story. Part of the, the thing with this is like when people say, Oh, we don't need the Old Testament. We just need Jesus, which people have been saying since a guy named Marcion in the second century. So it's not like right. this is new today. But when people say that, the problem is, is that, well, Jesus says you need the Old Testament. <laughs> like, And Jesus literally. He quotes it all the time. <laughs> and Jesus says, you can't understand who I am apart from the Old Testament. Like, I love the story in Luke 24, the resurrected Christ. He comes alongside of his disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And they don't recognize him, right? So how does Jesus reveal himself to them? I mean, he could have like had, you know, lightning flash and the voice of God from heaven. He could have, you know, it's the resurrected Christ. He could have said, guys, it's me, you know, and every, you know, every, the sun stops. He didn't do that. What did he do? It says he walks through the Old Testament with them and explains how the Messiah had to suffer and rise and, and so if Jesus is pointing to the Old Testament saying, if you want to understand who I am, you need the Old Testament, who are we to argue with him over that? So that's especially true when it comes to the doctrine of the atonement. I mean, the, I mean, the word atonement comes from the Old Testament. Everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus, right? Like it, right. it doesn't make sense what Jesus accomplishes on the cross and forgive how he forgives our sin, what kind of reconciliation we're talking about, like we're not just talking about generic reconciliation, like two parties who have been separated. No, covenant. Like we have a covenant relationship with God that's broken with sin and that is we're reunited with God in that covenantal relationship. And that's what the cross accomplishes. So 
yeah, we we need the Old Testament. If not, we'll just read whatever we want into what the New Testament <laughs> talks about with the cross. Which is everybody's favorite uh, theological Olympic sport, which is reading into the text what they want to be there. Uh, it's like, I wish it said this as opposed to this, which makes me not feel so good. But in the, for the last several months, Jeremy, I've been uh, studying Matthew because we do something on our show called The Forging Table. And every Sunday, it's me and three laymen. So no fancy degrees. We're not professional uh, Christians. And it's just me and three laymen that can read, you know, uh, talking about uh, the scripture for, you know, a book at a time for at an hour at a time. And when you read through Matthew, which was written for a primarily Jewish audience, and you see the sheer number of references to the Old Testament and the references, you know, specifically to Isaiah, it's like, um, imagine not having the Old Testament. You would be like, what are they referring to? Like, that would be the obvious question that would come to mind. So if you unhitch, it's not a good idea. So I, I thank you so much for agreeing with me that Andy Stanley is a super duper turd. You said it yourself basically just then, right? So we're going to clip that out, make sure it goes out on the internets. But we need to talk about something else right now. Let's talk about wrath. So that's another thing that makes us feel very uncomfortable. But before we, or I guess this can be part of our discussion with wrath, there was two different sentiments expressed in your book that I thought were contradictory. So I want you to kind of clear this up for me because I think I may have missed something. So let me read this, this paragraph here. God is a good king who loves his creation and is therefore opposed to that which violates its goodness. Because of his love, not in spite of it, God responds to sin and wickedness with anger. God's wrath is not a divine temper tantrum, but is rather his holy, settled opposition to that which seeks to corrode his creation. God's response to sin, therefore, is judgment, punishment, wrath, a curse, exile, and ultimately death. This is the penalty of sin. So, right, I'm there with you, and you made a bunch of scriptural references there on that last sentence that I just didn't want to read, but you make that argument. But then a little bit later on in the book, you had this one sentence that just stood out to me because I remembered that other, that other paragraph earlier in the book, but the sentence was this. We must understand that wrath is not an attribute of God. And so seemingly you described in detail with scriptural reference references how wrath is a, 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 an attribute of God, but then you say explicitly that it's not. So help me reconcile. Yeah. Great question. Um, what I mean when I say wrath is not an attribute of God is that it's not an essential attribute to his character, meaning that before the creation of the world, um, God is love, right? God is holy. God is pure father, son, and Holy spirit, uh, in perfect harmony, union, love, um, God didn't have wrath before the creation of the world because there was no sin to get angry at. There was no injustice to punish. So wrath is an out. So, but God is holy. He's, he's pure. He's set apart like that, that's his character. So wrath is God's response to sin in a fallen, broken world. So I'm not saying anything against the wrath of God. Like in the first quote that you mentioned, I believe in the wrath of God. I believe it's a very important theme in scripture and it's important for understanding what Jesus accomplishes at the cross. I'm just saying it's not something that's essential to his character. It's his response to sin in a broken world. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And uh, I figured you would answer somewhat like that, but just in case you didn't, I was ready to defend you if you did a crappy job of defending yourself because this was a great quote that I loved uh, whenever you were talking about the wrath. And so uh, I'll just read this quote here. I especially love the first sentence. This dichotomy arises from a sentimentalized view of love and a caricature of wrath. 
In our society, love is often reduced to affection or affirmation. To love someone is either to have warm feelings toward them or to affirm them without conditions. And when people in our society think of the wrath of God, they imagine a red-faced deity with a bad temper and a short fuse. This irritable God lashes out with uncontrollable rage and finds pleasure in punishing the wicked. These understandings of God's wrath and love are grossly unwarranted. And the thing I like especially about that quote, Jeremy, is yes, we of course have a very sentimentalized view of love and a character of wrath. And also we anthropomorphize everything. And so anthropomorphy is where you basically give a non-human thing, human characteristics and human feelings. So no, people, your dog is not sad. He's not thinking about you all day long. He's just being a dog, right? Like that that's what he's doing. That the the animal uh, is not giving you affection in the way that a image bearer of God can be giving it to you. But in the same way, we tend to, I guess, downgrade what yeah. symptom, like what, what these things end up looking like. So does that kind of make sense? Yeah. And I think, I, I think the anthropomorphic point is important because it's hard for us to imagine a perfectly pure wrath because we've never really seen that in a human right? Like we can have righteous anger, but like, I'm a, I'm a complex mixed person. Like I've, I've always got a little bit of pride, a little bit of like whatever going on, like mixing in with that. And so it's, we think of wrath and anger as like irritability, short fuse, self, you know, self-preservation. God's anger is a perfectly pure anger. And it's perfectly informed. It's never unloving. It's, it's you know, I, I love how God presents himself. The Lord, Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so it, I think it's hard for us to understand that with God because it's so hard for us to see it in a person. I think you're absolutely right. So let's move from one subject that people, that makes people uncomfortable, wrath, and let's move to shame. Let me read this quote here. For example, many liberal theologians have largely neglected the biblical theme of the wrath of God in relation to the atonement. Many conservative theologians have ignored the biblical theme of Satan's dominion. Both sides, at least in an American context, have overlooked the the important place of shame in Christ's work. We must seek to uphold the many dimensions of Christ's work and do so with integration and balance. So obviously I'm, I'm okay with integration balance. I, I ping way more conservative uh, politically. A lot of people ping that way as well. And we'll get into politics here in just a second. But I think overall, the lack of shame in our culture is doing a tremendous disservice to all of us in culture because there is no shame anymore. Because we are to shout our abortions now. We're not supposed to feel shame about something like that. We are to shout about what we prefer to do with our genitalia and who we prefer to do that with and whether or not we want to keep them, right? Like we're just supposed to shout that. There's no shame in culture. And if you do try to shame someone, you're seen as this evil person. Like how dare you shame them for their choices? Love is love and you know all truth is relative and these types of things. So talk to me a little bit more about how shame, you know, works itself out not only in a theological context but in in our world today. Well, shame, yeah, I think it's really important for us to understand this because when the Bible talks about the cross, we in the West, in like America, especially, we, we end up going to these kind of legal categories and usually talking about guilt. And Jesus died for forgiveness and uh, so I can be justified. This is kind of like legal courtroom terminology. 
But here's the thing. <clears throat> when the gospel writers talk about the cross, they do so primarily through a lens of honor and shame. And we miss it because we're not in an honor and shame culture. But think about yeah. it like this. Here's, here's an example, Kyle. I mentioned this in the book, but most people are not aware of this. We, when we think of the cross of Christ, we often think of the, the physical pain of Jesus. I think about growing up in youth group and hearing sermons about the cross. It was always like, think about the, the pain that he suffered and the nails through his hands and the scraping of his back and you know all that he went through for you. Did you realize that in the gospels, they never mention the physical pain of Jesus at all? They don't talk about it. You don't find it really anywhere in the New Testament. Now, it assumes it. It's not, you know, of course, Jesus went through a lot of physical pain. But the way they tell the story, all the emphasis is on social shame. He's being mocked. He's stripped of his clothes, uh, representing, I think, honestly, the shame of the Garden of Eden, where they realize their nakedness. Um, when people were crucified, crucifixion was invented not only to physically torture people, but to publicly shame them. So mm -hmm. Rome would crucify people in the hundreds and they would do it not in obscurity. They would line up crosses along busy Roman roads so that the people walking by would see them and mock them. It was a type of, of billboard for Rome saying, this is what happens when you mess with the empire. And, mm. and so it's about shame. It's about devaluing their personhood. And yet the story that, that we're being told in the gospels is that Jesus was doing that out of love because he was bearing our shame so that we could live in the honor of Christ. And so that's a beautiful truth because I, I think a lot of people do are driven by shame. When you hear people say things like, I'm just a loser, I'm an idiot, I'm the words that my parents spoke over me when I was a kid. I am the, I am the, the, um, like the things that have been done to me in the past that defines who I am. That's the language of shame. And the cross tells us not only that Jesus bears our guilt, but also that he bears our shame. He forgives our sin and he deals with the, the sin that has been done against us as well. So, man, that's beautiful news. When I think we allow that <clears throat> because we almost encourage that loser mindset because when somebody expresses these opinions, we respond with, oh yeah, and we validate them and their feelings and, you know, hey, let's talk through that and blah, blah, blah. And, and I understand there's a way of doing that, but I just got a DM this morning from a fan that's basically some of the same stuff that you said. He's like, man, I'm a loser and I keep messing up. I keep blah, blah, blah. And he's like, what should I do? And I'm like, you know exactly what you should do. Stop doing the stupid crap that you're doing. That's exactly what you should do. Like you should feel shame because you're making really big mistakes. Like stop making those mistakes. It's, it's like when people are like, man, I really wish I could get better at running. What should I do? I don't know. Put on running shoes and go run. Like, yeah, you can like when you're getting in the elite levels, you need to really maybe get some coaching and, and some direction. But for the most part, we just allow people to wallow in their shame. And it's like, you should feel that shame. You should feel the sting of defeat. Cause if you don't know what defeat feels like, you're not going to enjoy winning that much. And so I think that that's, that's very important. And, and another thing on the decency side, Eugenia Constantino wrote a great book called the crucifixion and the King of glory. And she really details everything about the crucifixion. And maybe the only 
decency they allowed Jesus to have was that they didn't what what she gets from her scholarship they didn't actually crucify him naked because that was the one thing that the Romans would allow the, the Jews as they were crucifying one of their people is that they wouldn't strip them completely naked because of the Jewish views on decency and in public nudity and those types of things but yeah you're you're exactly right I never quite put that together in terms of yeah they don't describe how Jesus felt um physically but they they were kind of alluding to what was happening to him and likely happening to him emotionally as well. Yeah. Um, so let's, tra let's transition to talking about something I kind of alluded to earlier, but I wanted to kind of get back to, and I'll read this quote and then it'll, it'll launch us into the discussion. Each Sunday, the church gathers to retell the story of the gospel and recenter our lives around the God of the gospel. The sacraments are at the heart of this, tangibly reminding the church of Christ's atoning work and our participation in his cruciform love. Well, I got to quibble with that because I think a lot of people join each other on Sundays to pat each other on the back, to listen to a rock concert and hear a TED talk with a few Bible verses sprinkled over the top so they can keep their tax exempt status. The number of times people can leave the church having not heard the gospel or heard a cheap version of the gospel is not insignificant and people get their spiritual skittles, which is what I call them. They get the great music with the homoerotic lyrics and they get the funny pastor guy and then they're out. They get their coffee to go and then they hop in their car and the skittles wear off before they're even out of the parking lot. I think that's one of our main problems right now is we don't have a full throated gospel that is presented every single day in most American churches. What say you? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it, it, Scripture is really clear that what pastors are called to do is to preach the word. We're not content creators. We're not supposed to be tickling people's ears, telling them what they want to hear. We're not entertainers. We're not comedians. Uh, we are heralds who have been entrusted with a message. And part of what breaks my heart is when I when I hear preachers just preaching like their latest hobby horse or only talking about what's happening in culture or like it breaks my heart because we don't, we don't have to come up with something like I'm not some spiritual guru who's figuring out, Oh no, this week, what can I say to like help people right. get it together? Like I don't have You're a messenger. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't right. have anything that like my opinions are nothing. But I do have the word of God and I'm called to bring that to bear on people's lives. And what people ultimately need to hear is not, hey, here's here's three or four things that you need to do to be a better person. What they need mm -hmm. to hear is this is what God has done for you in Christ. And it changes everything. And you've got to stop trying to control your own life and run and chasing after these idols and you need to surrender that and trust Jesus and receive this gospel and live for him, giving him all because he's given you all. And I agree. People need to hear that every week, according to God's word. And it breaks my heart that preachers don't do that and that churches settle for kind of taking commercialized Christianity and trying to compete with the world in entertainment or whatever it is, and then sprinkle spirituality on it. Um, that breaks my heart. And I, I hope that we can return to a robust <coughs> understanding of the gospel. That's where the power is. That's where the life-changing power is. Well, and listen, 
like, and I'm sure you would co-sign this. I'm not hating on people that use HD cameras to record, uh, you know, their, their pastor's sermon. I'm not hating on people that have big buildings. I'm not hating on people that have a nice wardrobe. A lot of these pastors actually get their wardrobes donated to them. Oh, I like, I, I'm not hating on any of those things in and of themselves. What I'm hating on is the message that's being, you know, presented on that high def video from that stage while wearing those clothes, because it's like, it, yes, if it is, here's four ways to be better at life today. It's like, yeah, that's good, but I didn't need to come to church for that. I didn't need to go to church. I could have gone to Instagram. Yeah, I could have just went bam and landed on one Instagram influencer and gotten that. Be yourself and you can do it and believe and achieve. And like you would have gotten that from the beginning. I didn't need that from a pastor. What I needed a pastor to do is to be like, if you're tempted to look at me, I want you to bounce your eyes off of me and back onto the father. And let's, by the way, talk about the sacrifice that he made for you. Like that's the way that that should be approached. But hey, who am I? I'm just a dude that can read. So yeah, we haven't talked other, about anything. Of, I don't go really ahead. I don't really care that much about what people wear either. What I care about is their character. Are they, are they preaching out of a place of godly character that's been purified by fire um, and where they're backing up what they're preaching? I think one of my, one of my concerns is that I think we have valued gifting over character. And so you get people who have platforms and who are dynamic and yet they're not cultivating the character. And so what happens is when that leads to li living a double life or some kind of scandal, then you have a bunch of wounded, confused Christians behind them saying, I had, a, I had an experience with God, but it came through this person who um, wasn't even believing it or living it out themselves. And what do I do with that now? So that breaks my heart. We need pastors who are preaching the gospel. And yeah, like I, it doesn't matter to me whether like the, the production quality of what you're doing. I think there's a, I think there's a place to invest in that and there's good reasons to and bad reasons to, but we need people of God who have godly character or who are preaching the word. I absolutely agree with you. And, and that doesn't mean that pastors won't be people that make mistakes, but there's a difference between a pastor that, you know, whoopsie said something from the pulpit that he probably shouldn't have said. And he has to apologize for it later. And someone like Ravi Zacharias, who was a sexual deviant and used ministry funds to fund his sexual piccadillies. And so it's like, these are the differences, but yeah, you're right. People that got saved out of Ravi Zacharias and our RZIM event are now questioning their faith because of what Ravi Zacharias did. And now they're questioning he died before anyone found out about it. And so he didn't get his justice and blah, blah, blah. It just creates a whole lot of, whole lot of a mess. So uh, I don't think we've talked about any incendiary or controversial subjects yet. So let's talk about politics. Let's just go ahead and dive headlong into that. So let me read this quote here. The politics of Jesus must be clearly distinguished from the political landscape of America, lest one be tempted to merely place Jesus on one side of the political aisle. Jesus is political, but not partisan. He is neither a Republican nor a Democrat. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our goal, therefore, is not to locate Jesus on the political spectrum of left and right, but to recognize that Jesus is creating a different kind of community altogether. The Son of God is not campaigning for a party. He is building a kingdom. Well, Jeremy, my problem with that, though, is elections happen <laughs> and the choices typically come down between a candidate with a blue tie and a candidate with a red tie. And those are the two dominant parties. If you vote libertarian, you're basically just chucking your vote into a dam like every time you do it. So congratulations, losers. But it's like at the same time, if you read the Bible and you try to locate a party platform, so 
not low. So taking it the other way. So not looking at left, right and seeing where we place Jesus. Let's just take one very obvious example, the subject of abortion. And so you cannot be a national Democrat, nationally elected Democrat and be okay with any type of regulations on abortion. You just can't. Same thing on the other side with Republicans. It's getting to the point now where if you try to concede, even though Republicans are trying to moderate on the issue because they're getting all scared of these these state, uh, you know, state election results and all that, which we don't have to talk about. But when you look at whether or not the Imago Dei is to be preserved and image bearers of Christ are to be snuffed out while in the womb or to be allowed to live until God calls them home, that that doesn't align with one particular worldview when it comes to politics. It only aligns with, or actually it does align with one worldview, and that's the Republican Party. And I don't believe everybody in the Republican Party is honestly pro-life or Christian because duh. But at the same time, it's great to describe that Jesus, hey, I'm not Republican, I'm not Democrat, I'm team Jesus, but we have to vote and we have to be a part of everyday culture and life. So, so help me understand that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, so at the end of the day, we have to vote. And I think Christians need to make sure that their faith is shaping their politics and they vote according to their conscience. Um, but just because we have to vote doesn't mean that we have to fully accept the, the two-party system and all that that represents in our society today. So what I mean by that is we have these kind of package deals where it's like, okay, if you want smaller government and are against abortion, then you're a Republican. If you care about immigrants and you want bigger government, then you're a Democrat. And you end up like, okay, if you're against racism or you're here, if you're like, and the problem is I say, if, if the, if the kingdom of God doesn't fit neatly into one of those categories, then I say, I don't submit to the categories. Like I want, I care about the unborn and I care about the immigrant. And if you're telling me I have to choose between those two, I say, Jesus is Lord and I'm following him. So my, my point that I'm making is there at the end of the day, I got to vote and I got to say, what do I think I can do in good conscience that represents the kingdom of God the best, knowing that I think both parties are going to have brokenness within them. But that doesn't mean that I have to identify the kingdom of God with the party that I'm voting or um, say that that's the only possible way. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely makes sense. Um, but I just did something that I hate when people do. They say no, and then they say yes. I literally just did that, and it drives me nuts. But I just did it. So, guys, if you think I don't make mistakes, look at me. Just then I said no, yes. Gah. Okay. But <clears> – <throat> I was at church, I was at my church, and I go to a very, very conservative, very right-leaning, very down-the-middle church with a pastor that doesn't like to ruffle feathers, like he just exposits the scripture, rinses, repeats every week, okay? We had an election. I can't remember if it was the last midterm or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. So the Sunday before the Tuesday elections, our pastor at the very beginning of his sermon said, and remember everybody on Tuesday, vote biblical values. And then he just went on with his sermon. And I remember being like, what? Just vote, just vote biblical values. So by the way, guys, define whatever that means for you and then vote on Tuesday. Now, I didn't think it would have been necessarily appropriate on a Sunday morning for him to put the ballot up on the screen and say, if you want to go to heaven, here are the people that you need to vote for. And here are the laws that you need to approve. No, no, no. Like that, that's not it. But when you say something that's so 
uh, I guess, vapid and can mean anything to anybody, vote biblical values. There are people that will use the Bible as mm-hmm. a reason why we shouldn't kill the unborn and others why we should be able to kill the unborn. And so my problem with you know saying things like, like vote your conscience or vote all those things is our consciences are broken and they're busted up. And you did say the biblical ethics need to kind of undergird the things that we do. The problem is, is there's not really an easy way to, to delineate down the middle. Cause I think it's a false dichotomy talking about abortion and talking about illegal immigration because one is an innocent human being that is worthy of protection. And another is a conscious adult that is choosing to cross the border illegally, knowing that they're going to get picked up. And, and again, there's a whole lot more to it. I'm painting with a broad brush. And so I guess that's my problem is like, how do we live out as a Bible believing gospel centered Christian vote your conscience or vote biblical values? Because gosh, it just doesn't seem very clear. Yeah. I mean, it's honestly, it's really complicated. Like it's, I, I, I don't think that it's simple. And part of that's where I get frustrated sometimes when it's, when people reduce it and make it sound so simple, like one, one party cares about life and the other party doesn't like, well, like, I, I just don't think it's that simple. And I think there's dangers that we have to be aware of. I mean, I'm, I'm fine with Christians being like staunch Republicans and this and that, but, but I also want to make sure that they're not making an idol out of something or, or uh, kind of like giving people a pass on anything because they'll get something through legislation. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot to it. I, I do think that the con like understanding conscience according to scripture is important. And I agree with what you said. I think we need to vote our conscience and we need to make sure our conscience is chastened by scripture. Um, but I also think that we need to, we need to work hard to understand like what the Bible teaches us about politics, what it means for our faith to shape our politics. But I also think Kyle, we have to recognize that that's, people are going to have some different convictions on that. So for example, the Bible is clear about God's heart for immigrants and that God's people should care for and love immigrants. Now, I know that that will even ruffle some conservative feathers, but I'm like, look, just look at the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. Like it, what I just said is just basic. Um, but there's different ways that that plays out in terms of how many people you should let into the, you know, past the borders or whether you build a wall or not, or the policies that you have about it. Those are really good conversations to be had. But if somebody's talking about it, just say, if, if they only talk about immigrants um, as being less than human and a nuisance and blah, blah, blah. I have a problem with that as a Christian. And part of that, I mean, I live in a place where I know a lot, there's a lot of immigrants, illegal and legal all around me in Los Angeles. So it's very personal for me and everyone has a story. So like it's, it's those kind of things of recognizing, all right, there's biblical principles that we need to agree on. God cares about immigrants. Christians should care about immigrants but then there's different ways in terms of policies that that plays out. And there's good conversations to have around that. Yeah. And that's the thing is most of these conversations should be taking place uh, with a cigar in one hand and a, and a whiskey in the other. And like really kind of working these things out because like my argument would be laws should lead to the most amount of human flourishing possible. That That's a super utilitarian view. 
But, you know, when you when you have an open border like what we have at our southern border right now, you will get the people that just want a better opportunity for their family, which would lead to more human flourishing. But then you also get people that are terrorists from other countries that know we have a porous southern border. And so they're going to be part of sleeper cells inside this country that could end up killing thousands of us because we felt no need to secure what was going on down there. You see, like there's always that that tug and pull. And for me... I, I like when nations have their own sovereignty because in America, like I'm okay with us being uh, a theonomy, not a theocracy. A theonomy means that we're guided by the principles of a Judeo-Christian ethic. A theocracy is that we're going to force down our Christian viewpoints on you regardless of if you want to take them. And if you don't want to take them, we're going to give them to you good and hard anyway. And so, but you're right. It, it, it does require a little bit more discussion. It doesn't always get to be so super black and white. So to wrap up our discussion about your book, I want to talk about suffering because in the book, <clears throat> excuse me, you do talk about suffering. You talk about how Christians uh, never suffer without purpose which is obviously true. But we feel like we have bought this cultural Christianity lie that if we're suffering, we're doing something wrong, which is kind of like an old Jewish view to where it's like, if, if you're cursed, it's probably like, well, you had it coming because of something you did or your parents did, right? And so that that, that doesn't really jive with with a Christian ethic. And so we, we, we feel like we, 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 we buy into the Joel Osteen way of doing things to where it's like, you know what, I'm just going to believe and I'm just going to name it and I'm going to claim it. And that's just what's going to happen. And so if things are going wrong, God's mad at us. And so talk to us a little bit about suffering because you can't read the Bible, Jeremy, and read about what happened to the apostles. Like Jesus's chosen dudes, aside from Judas, well, even though Jesus was chosen, you know what I'm saying? But like, look at what happened to these people. The only one that quote unquote got off easy was John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And they tried to kill him by dunking him in oil a bunch of times. And the dude just wouldn't freaking die. And so they tortured him, but couldn't kill him. And he just died you know, on this godforsaken island, like it wasn't in the Caribbean. It was, it was just not a great opportunity. So where do people get this idea that we shouldn't suffer? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think you get American Christianity mixed with the American dream and the prosperity gospel sprinkled, sprinkled in there. And there's this idea that if I, if I do good things for God, then he's going to bless me and everything's going to be great. And then, like you said, we suffer which is inevitable. Everybody suffers. And then we either think, oh, either I didn't have enough faith and then I end up walking mm. in shame or God's not working. Like he's not really who he said he was. And this whole thing is a sham. And people are mad at God for, for not keeping promises that he never made. <laughs> right? So God never told you if you went to church on Sundays that everything would work out well for you in your life. In fact, God sets the expectations really clearly. I mean, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So I think suffering, understanding suffering in the place of the Christian life is so important because God wants to meet us in our suffering. We often think, okay, if I'm suffering, maybe I'll meet God on the other side. Like I just got to get through it and God's waiting for me over there. No, we believe in the cross and the God of the cross, that God enters into our suffering with us. He builds character. He forges intimacy with him in the midst of that. And he uses it for his purposes. And that's where the cross is the ultimate display 
of how God can enter into suffering. He can enter into the worst of situations and make something beautiful out of it. That's what he's doing with our lives. That's what he's doing with the world. And it all happens through the cross of Christ. And so I feel like for me as a pastor, one of my jobs is to help prepare people to suffer well. It's it's coming. We're all going to suffer. And when we do, will we allow that to soften our hearts um, and draw near to God or to harden our hearts and rebel against God? And so I... I don't want to be an old an old man who's been hardened and bitter by the hard things that have happened and that will happen in my life. I want to let those things humble me and soften me to be a compassionate person who loves people and lives for God. And one of the things that will help us as well is if we operate in this world and comport ourselves with a kind of embrace the suck mindset. And so we live in these very sanitized worlds. Everything's bubble wrapped. We don't have to go out and kill the animal uh, after hunting it in order to eat it. We just go buy some that's wrapped in cellophane already for us. And we don't have to exercise because we can just take pills and those pills will solve this physical ailment. And then we have to take pills to solve that one that it causes, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if you're doing hard things all the time, if you're digging into theology, if you're reading books that are stretching you, if you're having hard conversations with people that disagree with you, if you're working out like your life depends on it, because it kind of sort of does, like when you're embracing the suck in all these areas of your life, when something does befall you, you will be more prepared and more resilient, resilient to deal with that. And then where you're not, where you're weak, God can take over, obviously. And so I think we would both certainly agree with that. But Jeremy, we've talked about a lot of stuff today. We've covered a lot of ground, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Oh man, I'm just uh, grateful for you for the podcast. I want to encourage people, uh, seek first the kingdom. There's so many things in our lives that we're distracted by that we end up running after. Jesus simplifies it for us really clearly. Live for the kingdom of God. Uh, There's nothing more important than that. And it is a cruciform kingdom. It's a kingdom that we enter into through the cross. It's a kingdom that's shaped by a life of Uh, taking up our cross and living for it. And that's my prayer for people that we would live for the kingdom, represent Christ well as we do that. That's a great place to leave it. Jeremy Treat, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Right. Thanks, Kyle. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Jeremy Treat. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a link to three different books of his. So The Atonement and Introduction, which is what we talked about today, but also the other two I mentioned in the intro, Seek First and The Crucified King. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.